We come before you, Father, uh, asking that you would give us your spirit to be our counselor, our teacher, our guide, to lead us into all the truth. And then, sovereignly, he knows exactly what we need. So maybe I ask him to surprise us. Some of us were going to be convicted, others challenged, others comforted in a strange way. We may learn new truths. We may learn old truths, but kind of go, I've never thought about it that way. We just want to be open to your spirit moving amongst us, uh, having his way in and through us. And so we submit to him, and we ask that you would give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. This morning, the teaching, uh, or the word upon which the teaching is based, is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I mentioned that Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It is probably also one of the most theological and deepest chapters in all of the Bible. And it is probably one of the greatest chapters on the person of the Holy Spirit. For we learn in this chapter of the nature of his ministry, who he is, what he's all about, and what he has done for us and what he is doing to us. So let me ask you this question. How aware are you and how consciously do you live in fellowship with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you have heard that the new Star Wars movie is coming out at the end of December. If Google has it right for me, because I have to admit I'm not on it as much as maybe some of you all, December 20th. Now I'm wondering how many of you have even gone so far as to purchase your tickets for opening night, I see some. See, I and I said this at first service. I said at first service it was zero. Nobody had purchased their tickets yet, and I said, "I'll bet you there are at least a few who have purchased their tickets for opening night of Star Wars." Now I wonder how many of us, even if we know in our heads this isn't the case, how many of us kind of functionally act like. The Spirit is kind of like the force. And you even hear the Holy Spirit dwells within you and in your mind, the force is with you. Maybe some of us older folks, do I call us pseudo-youth? Is that, is that fair enough if I do, do that to us? You know, we remember the term in some traditions, the Holy Ghost. And our minds are going, 
Casper. Now, see, I could ask for a raise of hand. Anybody ever hear of Casper? Yeah, see, some of us at least. It's interesting to prepare. This is one of the, I told you, multi-generational church. You don't know how hard I have to think about illustrations for all ages. Some of you are going, I've never heard of Casper. And some of you are going, star what? What is the force? But I'm trying to get you to think, how aware are you I mean consciously and functionally aware of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'll allude to this a couple times throughout the course of going through this text, but probably one of the greatest parallels in terms of Paul's writing the letter to the Romans is his letter to the Galatians. And in Galatians, where he's talking about the battle of the flesh and the spirit, much like he does in Romans chapter 7, he says this, he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, if you think about that, to walk with somebody means to do life with him. You're walking step by step, side by side. You're connected. You're experiencing him. You're in partnership. You're doing life together. You're in fellowship. That doesn't sound like just a force. That's a personal relationship with the third person of the Trinity. So I'm going to ask you again because I want you to think about this as we work our way through the text. How aware are you and how consciously do you live in fellowship with, walking with, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? Or is it kind of like you think about them when on those quarterly basis or monthly basis we recite the Apostles' Creed? or when he happened to be mentioned in some passage of scripture that Jeff is preaching from. And yet, the key to experience, experiencing God, actually knowing God personally and experiencing him, is the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this text te teaches us that the Holy Spirit dwells or has taken up residence within you. He comes to live permanently. It's not like, leave the light on, he's coming to the Motel 6. He's coming permanently to live with you. So the Holy Spirit, then, is the key to experiencing God. In other words, without his influence, you do not experience God. He is the means that God has sovereignly established for you to experience him. So what's happening here is in Romans chapter 8, Paul is building his argument much like one would present a symphony, bit by bit, reaching a tremendous crescendo. And that crescendo is at the end of the chapter in verses 38 and 39, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's explosion at the end shows us that everything he has been building up to, everything that bit by bit he has been teaching and confronting us with, is to show us that the Holy Spirit's business, his main job is to convince believers, remember this is a letter to a church, so he's not trying to convince unbelievers here. He is trying to convince your heart and my heart that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
Do you know why he's doing that? Because we live in a world where everything is telling us you're alone, you're on your own, you can't do it, you don't have what it takes, you're incompetent, everything's beating against us. And Paul says, God has given us a gift. He's given us himself to take up residence within you, to convince you that nothing, not your successes, not your failures, not your guilt, not your shame, not the present, not even what you're afraid of facing in the future, not that doctor's visit, not looking at your retirement portfolio, not wondering how your kids and grandkids are doing, nothing in the entire cosmos can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is saying it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us of that. So are you convicted yet and convinced yet of our need for the Holy Spirit? Maybe we need him in our life a little bit more than we think we do. See, in the passage Rick preached on last week, verses 1 to 4, explains that the Spirit shows us that nothing can separate you from his love by the fact that you are non-condemnable. Not just not condemned, but that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as Tim Keller writes, he says, it's not like we become forgiven and then sin and go to not being forgiven and then go out and sin again and we're condemned again. Tim Keller refers to this as daisy theology. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me not. He loves me not. The Holy Spirit shows us he loves us all the time and all the way to the bottom. And now in this passage, remember I said this is like a symphony orchestra, that bit by bit he's showing us that nothing can separate us from his love. First part of the passage, because there's no condemnation. This part of the passage, verses 5 through 11, he's showing us that nothing can separate us from his love because the Spirit is changing you. The Bible calls this sanctification, where he's actually making us holy. Paul wrote to Titus that he's purifying for himself a people for his very own possession. The word sanctify means to set apart. In other words, he has chosen and called and set apart a people to be the apple of his eye, that he calls his beloved, that he actually calls his bride or his wife, and he sets you apart, and he's purifying you for his very own possession to make you more and more his. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. And we take great comfort and great encouragement that he's changing you. And this passage teaches us that he's changing us, we're being changed, and he's doing it in two ways. First of all, he's changing us by giving us a new direction, and second of all, he's changing us by giving us a new life. He's changing our direction and he's giving us a new life. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. Now, what is the work of the Spirit? Notice it says in these verses that the person who lives, who walks either according to the flesh which is the realm that's life apart from God, or the spirit, which is the realm that is lived in dependence upon God, the realm of Christ, has their minds set on the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit. 
and that we're living in one of those two realms all the time. You're never neutral. We're either having our minds set on the things of the flesh or our minds set on the things of the spirit. So what are the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit? Other translations put it, the things that the spirit desires. What is it that the spirit desires? And I know I've quoted this verse a lot, but this gives you the main function or job description of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, verse 14, that the central function of the Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is His and manifesting it to us, making it real to us. J.I. Packer says that the Spirit is like a floodlight that shines on Jesus. If the floodlight is doing its job properly, you never see the floodlight, only the object it is shining on. So the Holy Spirit's main role is to not zap you with power. It's not like we pray to walk by the Holy Spirit and then we kind of wait, wait and go, osmosis. When's it going to come? Zap me now. Now the Holy Spirit has a very real means by which he does his job. Through the means of grace, that's the word of God, that's prayer, that's the sacraments, that's being with other believers. The Holy Spirit, and J.I. Packer And another one of his writings says, the Holy Spirit is like a divine matchmaker who is taking the believer and taking Jesus and bringing them together. Which means when we come through the means the Spirit uses, so and it means some practical things to us. And this is what it means to walk by the Spirit. Have your mind set on what the Spirit desires. It means when we, let's take the means of reading His Word. It means when we read His Word... And this is going to be controversial and and dangerous here. We are not reading his word for, dare I say it, doctrine. Now there's a lot of doctrine in it, so I'm not being anti-doctrinal. But doctrine is not our aim. Do you want to know what your aim is? Your aim is Jesus. And the Spirit will use a lot of beautiful, rich, gorgeous doctrine but he'll use it to take you to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus himself said that we are to take his yoke upon us, that yoke which is easy and his burden which is light, and he says, learn from me. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to use his various means. So that means when we pray, the aim of prayer is getting Jesus. When we come to the word, the aim of the word is getting Jesus When we take the sacraments, the aim of the sacraments is getting Jesus. And the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is that divine matchmaker who is bringing us to Jesus. How aware are you of what the Spirit is doing? Or do you read the Word and pray? Do you read the Word just to get information? Do you read the Word just to get knowledge? Or do you read the Word because you want to see, for example, how beautiful Jesus is in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. Do you read the word, for instance, to learn how beautifully Jesus relates to other people? So just to give you one example, do you ever think about how beautiful it is that Jesus relates to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? And when he relates to the Samaritan woman, Now, I said two key words, and we have to think. And this is what the Spirit does when he takes you to the Word. We're not just learning a key doctrine here. Think about what it means that Jesus, a Jewish person, 
is relating to a, let's start with a Samaritan. Rumor has it the Jews and Samaritans didn't care for each other a whole lot. They didn't like each other a whole lot. Jesus is all about shattering barriers. He broke down that barrier just to have a conversation with this Samaritan. And then not just any old Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Men did not talk to women publicly in this context. Perhaps Jesus had never heard of the Billy Graham rule that he wasn't supposed to relate one-on-one -on -one with a woman. But Jesus is all about, and the Holy Spirit, when you read the word, is taking you to show you the beauty of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the excellence, to look at it. Why? Because the Spirit is changing you and sanctifying you. And what does that mean? He's making you more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that Rick read in the first service, you can still look at it. It's printed in your bulletin in our Living Church section. We read it in the first service. Talks about we are being changed. We are being transformed. I mean, imagine the mystery and the beauty that's in this. That the Spirit is sanctifying us, changing us from one degree of glory to another. And what that looks like is he is making us like Christ. So to have your mind set on what the Spirit desires is that your mind will be set on the Spirit making you like Jesus. Conforming you to Christ. Looking like things like the Beatitudes and 1 Corinthians 13 and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So again, is your mind set? How aware of you are the Holy Spirit? How aware of you that one of the things we do in this life is we display, if the Spirit's in us, and the Spirit's making us like Christ, conforming us to Christ's image, we actually display Christ by how we relate to other people. We make visible the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a beautiful picture. What a wonderful biography of Jesus that is. We display, we make visible to others that love is patient. You might as well put Jesus' word in there. Jesus is patient. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus rejoices with the truth. How much is your spirit is or is your mind set on what the spirit desires? Next, he gives us new direction, he gives us new life. Look with me at verse 9. And verse 9 says, right after the end of verse 8, he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So just so you're aware, if not only do we not please God, we can't please God, what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of total inability. So we obviously can't change ourselves, let alone change anybody else, by the way. Think about this. Verse 9 begins then with these great encouraging words. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
Now, let's notice a couple of things briefly here. First, I want you to notice the identity and character of the Holy Spirit. He is God. Notice how many times in these verses we see the term Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ, Spirit of Him. These are all used interchangeably and synonymously. And this is so important for the encouragement of showing us that the Spirit is giving us new life. Christianity says that God is one. He is one God in three persons, the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are so one that when one comes, they all come. So you have new life because God actually takes up residence with you. He lives in you. Notice it says that if he doesn't live with you, and in you, you do not belong to Christ. If you do not have the Spirit living in you, you are not a Christian. It's possible to believe in the existence of Jesus, believe He's the Son of God, but if the Spirit of Jesus doesn't live in you, you are not actually a Christian. Now there is a very big difference between someone visiting you and actually coming to live with you. Had to think about this this week as we celebrated my mom and dad's 60th wedding anniversary this past week. And so we went up to St. Augustine and took them to dinner. And when we asked my mom where she wanted to go to dinner, one of her favorite places is Gypsy Cab Company. So we went to Gypsy Cab Company up in St. Augustine. And it reminded me of all the times prior to my living in Florida when we would vacation in Florida and visit my mom and dad. And it was so much fun. Because visiting, you know what we did? We'd go to the beach, and I'd play golf with my dad, and we'd go out to dinner, and there was like no work, and there was no responsibility, and we would, it's like we'd rinse, repeat, and do it again. Play golf. My, morning, my schedule was pretty much play golf in the morning, go to the beach in the afternoon, go to dinner at night. I loved visiting. When we moved down here, when we were called to Spruce Creek in 2003, the first three months we lived here before we got our apartment and then our house, we lived with my mom and dad. And in case they, my mom listens to this, it was awesome. <laughs> it really was in many respects. But there's a difference, for the point of the illustration, there's a difference between living and visiting. Because when you're living with somebody... Everything you do, they do. You smell the same thing, you're eating the same thing, tasting the same thing, watching the same TV, whatever you read, they read, you watch on TV, they watch on TV. Now, point of the illustration, God doesn't come to visit you. He lives with you. So what are you subjecting him to? What is he seeing? What is he smelling? What is he tasting? What is he watching on TV? What is he reading? Verse 10 says that the body is dead because of sin and your spirit is alive because of righteousness. This means that unrighteousness is the source of all your deadness. It's all your drying up inside, all your numbness. Unrighteousness keeps you dead. But righteousness makes you alive. It lets you see. You see all sorts of new realities. All sorts of new things. So where unrighteousness kills you, righteousness makes you alive. 
So let me close with just a couple of brief applications. First of all, if you hear this, and you can be in God's word, and you can do this, and sin doesn't trouble you at all. If you can live with sin very easily, basically swim in sin without any without it bothering you, without it troubling you, without it causing you to wrestle in your conscience, let me give you what I hope is a loving warning. Perhaps you should ask yourself if you really belong to Christ because the passage clearly says that the Spirit will change you. Now, hear me closely, hear me carefully. The passage is not teaching that the Spirit will make you perfect. But if you're swimming in sin and really can be apathetic and indifferent to it, not troubled by it, completely unaware and not really caring about it, I think there may be reason to question yourself. And again, I want to say, what will that change look like if he's changing you? Well, remember we talked about the letter to the Galatians. And he tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, if he's making us like Christ, that change will look like that we will look more and more like Jesus. Not in his omnipotence, omniscience, those care, but we'll look more like him in his humanity. We'll look more like him in his person. And his person, the best description of him, is what I talked about earlier, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is long-suffering or patience. Jesus is kindness. Jesus is goodness. Jesus is faithfulness. Jesus is gentleness. And Jesus is self-control. Is your life looking more and more like this? If we were to go up to your spouse, your best friend, your neighbor, someone who knows you well, is this what comes to their mind? Is your life displaying the fruit of the Spirit? Second, take comfort, take encouragement. Maybe you're sitting there and you're feeling convicted. Good. It's a sign of life. It's evidence. If you want to know, how do I know I'm in Christ? Oh, the Spirit's convicting me. Rejoice. That is a sign of life. That is a good thing. If you're troubled over sin, if you feel grief over it, if you look at your life and say, I ache, I long to display more of the fruit of the Spirit. That is an evidence of the Spirit working within you. And I want to tie this in with verses 1 through 4 that Rick preached on last week. And that is, don't be convicted because you're afraid God will somehow get you or condemn you. Remember verse 1. Remember the foundation of this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you have that conviction... He will never not love you or accept you because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, be convicted out of mercy, not terror. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and grace. And we pray that you would help us always to understand more and more of your mercy, and then even be convicted out of mercy, that we're not simply breaking your law, 
But we're sinning against love, and we're sinning against your design. And help us when we do see our sin and are convicted of it to see Jesus loving us, accepting us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.